You're listening to the Therapy for Women podcast with licensed therapists Amanda White, Fern Formel, and Gabby Salomone. Whether you're contemplating therapy for the first time, already in therapy, or reconsidering it, this podcast will empower you with tips, advice, and plenty of real talk so you can get the most out of your sessions. Welcome back, everyone, to the Therapy for Women podcast. How are we doing today? We're good. Happy to be here. Excited. Once again, it's a Friday. I'm excited for the end of the week. Yes, yes. It's finally like spring here in Philadelphia, so that is nice. And we have one of our lovely therapists with us, Jess. Jess, why don't you introduce yourself? How are you? I'm great. I'm really excited to be on the podcast. I've been listening and I'm a big fan fan of all the work you guys are doing and all the clinicians in our practice. So I'm excited. I'm Jess. I am a licensed social worker and I just graduated with my master's last year. And I started out as an intern at Therapy for Women and I'm really excited to be a part of the team full time. Yes. yes, we are yeah. very happy to have you and absolutely you be a resource for us. And yeah, like it's been a great almost almost two years that you've been with us, right? Like September because you started as the intern and then came on mm-hmm. last May as full time, and we're almost there. So it's like your one year post graduation coming up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's very exciting. It's always like. <laughs> I well, I don't know. Maybe that's just me, and I'm just like nostalgic and stuff. But I always like I, you will constantly find me being like, "Oh, I graduated high school X amount of years ago," or "Oh, I graduated <laughs> grad school X amount of years ago." I'm very I like to reminisce quite a bit. So you know, those anniversaries are fun. I think. <laughs> I think that's a positive look yeah. on aging, Fern. <laughs> <laughs> You know, not a single part of me feels that scared about aging. So maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe I just have a really positive outlook <laughs> Fern is embracing it yeah she is she's like here we go I am here I'm ready and I'm like wait how long ago did I graduate high school oh wow wow <laughs> that was a while ago <laughs> listen it's all all good things look think about how much you've grown and everything that's happened since then even just like for you like your anniversary is coming up and like think about how much you've probably grown and all the things you've learned in the last year even like Mm -hmm. you know but again maybe that's my positive outlook on life (laughs) no I definitely agree I feel like I am much more confident now in my skills and my clinical Mm -hmm. instincts than when I first started out you know, like a year mm-hmm. and a half ago um, yeah. at Therapy for Women. So it's it feels good. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Lowering yeah. imposter syndrome daily. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, and I think we should point out, like, you know, even though you came out into the field outside of school, that you saw clients all through school, right? Hence the internship. And mm-hmm. so you've – I would argue that you've been in the field longer than that because you – are working as a therapist when you're in school. Yeah, I'm, I'm, no, I think that's true. And I think also, you know, kind of getting into the topic that we're going to talk about today, my background prior to grad school was in victim services work. So I had a lot of experience working with clients directly, specifically in crisis work and crisis situations. Um, so I do feel like I came into grad school already having a little bit of experience under my belt, which I think really helped. Yeah, for sure. I agree. Yeah, no, that's why part of, you know, the draw for us to bring you on as an intern was there because of your previous experience. And then, you know, you just grew more while, you know, at the practice. And so now here we are. So just wanted to tell us a little bit about what you're, you specialize in when you see clients and a little bit about your therapeutic frame of reference. Yeah. So I specialize in trauma. I specifically have a lot of experience working with clients who have experienced sexual abuse or 
intimate partner violence or even child abuse. And for me, like the most important touchstone for me clinically as a clinician is all about empowerment. And that is something that I find I continuously come back to when I am not sure where to take a session or what might be the most supportive thing for a client in that moment. For me, it always goes back to what can I do that's going to be most empowering for that person in that moment. So within that, I do a lot of CBT work. Um, I definitely do a lot of narrative therapy work. Um, I love narrative therapy. I think especially with trauma work, that opportunity to rewrite the narrative that you have in your head about what you experienced and what that experience says about you can be so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I love, I love narrative therapy. So I'm right there with you, Jess. So today we're, we're jumping into talking more about trauma, but specifically intimate partner violence or also known as IPV, aka it used to be called domestic violence, but these days we call it IPV. I guess for thinking about that and thinking about that you specialize more in trauma and the frameworks that you use, Jess, what made you and this might be a personal question and we and and you know um please let me know if you're willing to answer this but i guess what allowed you or caused you to gravitate towards working more with, with trauma and such because that's that's a heavy topic to talk about and a lot of therapists aren't super trauma heavy when it comes to their practice yeah no i definitely don't mind talking about that so i grew up in the south and i would say This culture exists everywhere, but um, I think especially where I grew up, there were certain issues and topics that were really not talked about, and intimate partner violence and sexual violence (laughs) were some of those topics. Um, And so I didn't really have a lot of exposure or really any education growing up about these topics. And when I was in college, I found that I whether it was attending events on campus, like Take Back the Night, or experiences that people around me were going through, I was exposed to these issues more. And kind of that education and awareness of how prevalent sexual violence and intimate partner violence were made me it really lit a fire in me and made me want to help and want to do what I could to work with the people addressing these issues. And so I actually started out in education and prevent violence prevention education. Um, And so in college and in my very first internship and in one of my first jobs out of college, I was really focused on violence prevention education and kind of educating people about what they deserve to have in their sexual experiences and in their relationships. So talking a lot about consent and respect and boundaries and what healthy behaviors look like. And, you know, doing that work really just kind of fed that fire for me. And I just am so passionate about helping to empower people to be able to advocate for themselves and to build healthier relationships. And I think as I continued to do that work, it was kind of a natural progression that eventually I wanted to be able to work even more directly with clients long-term because I started out kind of when I was doing that education stuff, doing crisis work with victims of sexual abuse. And I love that crisis work. And I always tell people, I think crisis work is one of the best places to learn, but I really wanted to be able to follow clients more long-term through that journey and support them more long-term. And that's kind of how I ended up going to grad school to become a therapist. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. So just tell us a little bit about maybe how you start educating somebody 
that you suspect maybe is struggling with intimate partner violence or is it just like general education to the masses as a whole like that's better like tell like tell me a little bit about that because I'm not really sure (laughs) yeah so I think I think the answer to that is twofold right I do think there is a place for general education to the masses right and so that's one of the reasons why that is a topic that I try to promote on social media right and the education that we as a practice do to reduce stigma around mental health related topics on social media but with clients it's a little bit more nuanced i guess i would say typically when a client comes in and we do that intake session where we're asking them basic questions about their life right one of the things that's going to come up is are you in a relationship and If a client tells me that they're in a relationship, I want to know more about that because that's a big part of their life. And so typically I'll ask them, like, tell me a little bit more about your partner. Um, What drew you to your partner? Um, What do you love most about your partner? And usually, I would say with most clients, usually from their responses to those first questions in the intake, I can pick up whether this relationship feels like it's most likely a healthy relationship or whether there might be elements of unhealthy behaviors or even abusive behaviors. Um, I would say typically in that first intake, I've got a sense. And then from there, I'll ask more follow-up questions. So sometimes I'm asking more follow-up questions in the intake, depending on what their responses are. But oftentimes I'll wait a little bit to build more of that safety and trust between us so that I I want the client to feel safe opening up about these things um, and safe to be honest about what we're talking about. So it's kind of like a gut instinct there as to how quickly I'll ask about that. But oftentimes I'll say, I'll ask them, you know, can I... I want to explore something. Can I give you a little bit of information about healthy relationships versus abusive relationships or unhealthy? And can we see what resonates for you? Because for me, I never want to label a client's experience for them. I want to give them the information and allow them to decide whether that label of unhealthy or abusive resonates for them that that for me is a really important of that like empowerment touchstone that I mentioned earlier as a therapist yeah absolutely and so I guess thinking about what you can pick up on in session what would be some warning signs that like you look out for or even that like loved ones could look out for of people that they suspect might be in an unhealthy or abusive relationship Yeah, I think that's a a great question. I think for anyone to be aware of for their own relationships, for friends, loved ones. For me, I think when I think about intimate partner violence or sexual abuse, I think about power and control, right? Like at the most basic level, that is what those types of violence are about. And so One of the things that's always a red flag for me is if it feels like there is some sort of power imbalance there where the person's partner is trying to grab or maintain more than half of the control in a relationship or it doesn't feel like the decisions are shared. So anytime you have an instinct that someone is like, really controlling of their partner in any way, that is a red flag. If someone, you know, doesn't have control of the money, that's a big red flag. If they don't have access to money or if someone shares, a client shares that maybe they're given an allowance by their partner, Mm. that would be a red flag. Finances. Yeah. And and I think we should acknowledge, right, that I'm guessing there's a difference between someone who they've made a 
a joint decision that like one partner will take care of the finances versus you don't know anything about the finances and maybe you're giving an allowance or or whatnot. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, delegating tasks is a normal, healthy behavior in any relationship, right? And so if you've made a joint decision mm -hmm. that one person is more comfortable managing finances, that's a very normal behavior. But if you have a situation mm -hmm. where your partner is not allowing you to know anything about the finances or only allows you minimal access to money and you have to ask them for permission or ask them for money for basic things, that would be a red flag, right? Because then you're not partners, then mm -hmm. your partner is almost in like a custodial role of you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So Jess, with, with the warning signs, so we talked about control and power. We talked about finances. What other uh, maybe warning signs would be there to, to look out for? I think if you are feeling like, in, well, I think kind of going along with that idea of power and control, if you are feeling mm -hmm. like you don't have control over your own life in any aspect, right? Whether it's your partner wanting to dictate what you wear or what you eat, or they're making a lot of comments about your body or how you've gained weight or the way that you choose to dress. If they are, you know, if you're finding that they are manipulative in any way. Um, so one of the things that I talk a lot about with clients is coercion, right? And the idea of there's a difference between you and your partner having a conversation and presenting each presenting your side or your point of view on a decision that you're going to make jointly. And then a situation where your partner isn't really interested in what you have to say or your opinion. All that they are interested in is convincing you to align with their point of view. Right. To me, like, that is the distinct difference between, you know, having a conversation about something and then you decide together and coercion, right? So if you have, if your partner is saying things like, if you loved me, you would do this for me, or my old girlfriend would do this for me, right? Or, you know, my last boyfriend was really great about doing this, but they're saying it in a way that is meant to shame you or blame you for not being good enough. I think those are signs that there's some manipulation or coercion going on. Honestly, I think in terms of red flags or abusive behaviors, they're endless, right? Like we could sit here and talk for two hours about all of the different ways that I'm sure each of us as therapists has seen our, our clients either, ex, you know, participate in abusive behaviors toward their partners or experience abusive behaviors from their partners. And we could go on forever talking about that. But I think for me, like the basic question is always, you know, if this behavior doesn't feel right to you, if something about this behavior feels icky or uncomfortable, ask yourself, like, what is the motivation behind this behavior? You know, are they isolating you from your friends and family or, you know, telling you that your friends and family don't understand you because your friends and family are actually being harmful to you? Or are they telling you that because... Mm -hmm isolating you from your friends and family makes you more dependent on them and makes you less likely to leave. Mm, okay. Right. So really understanding and yeah. reflecting on like, what is it about? Just uh, something that's coming up for me is like, people love the term um, gaslighting these days. Right. Yeah. How do you see that 
and maybe can you explain what gaslighting is to those that don't know, come up in um, intimate partner violence? Yeah. So gaslighting, I would say, is it's been such a buzzword in the last couple of years. People are not always using it correctly. <laughs> For me, the way that I understand gaslighting is you are being gaslit if the other person is intentionally trying to make you believe that you're crazy, right? They're trying to make you believe that your perception of reality is not what really happened, right? So, you know, say your partner was physically abusive in some way, and then later down the line is saying, I never, you know, laid hands on you what are you talking about? Like you bumped into that wall or you ran into the door and they are adamant that they never laid hands on you. And you start to question, wait, am I crazy? Right. And I think that that's the biggest thing with gaslighting is if you start to ask yourself, wait, am I crazy? And that's not what happened. You're probably being gaslit. What about more – I'm thinking more like nuanced situations, which is why I think gaslit gets thrown around a lot. Like when someone's like, well, this was my experience and someone is like, well, this was my experience. Is that considered a gaslighting or is that having two different perspectives on something that happened? Right? And I'm not talking about physical abuse, right? Physical abuse is very clear. That's a clear, you know, clear situation. But I, the more uh, murky stuff. Right. And I think – The reality is that like two people can be in a room, experience the same thing and walk away with totally different perspectives on what happened. And that is normal. Mm -hmm. That's a very normal thing. It's two kids that grew up in the same exact household that encountered the same exact situations, you know, a Christmas morning experience, right? One's going to tell you one thing, the other one's going to tell you the other thing. And, if, and and then even if you add in like mom and dad, right, they're going to tell you something completely different. And it's all four people have different emotional experience uh, to the same exact situation at any given time. Exactly. So I think for me, the key difference with gaslighting is not that you have a different perspective on what happened even having you know a different perspective on why were we fighting or what was the intention with this action that you made right or why did this happen but I think with gaslighting the difference is I am telling you that you are wrong or crazy or making things up in order to manipulate you and have control of the situation Yeah, it's like my thing that comes up for me is like when it's like you're putting a request out there and they turn around and like blow up and the request is made to seem like it's a huge ask, right? Like, can you put your clothes away? And then it's like, oh my God, why are you always on me? I always do so much around here. Don't you see that? Why can't you just get off my back? Mm -hmm. And then you're like, wait, I think I just asked you to put your clothes away. Did I? Is that a huge ask? And then you start questioning yourself. Mm-hmm. Am I always on him? Am I always doing this? Am I always doing that? And you're like, I think I just asked you to put your clothes away. I don't understand what's happening here. I'll just do it myself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or another example that comes to mind for me, Gabby, is you know, with honesty in a relationship, right? And that idea of you know, you say you ask your partner, "Where were you?" Why did you come home so late? Right. And they lie to you about it and you find out and they're like, well, I wouldn't have to lie to you if you weren't so nosy or, you know, you know, making it out like you were the problem there for something that is a very normal expectation in a relationship, which is you're going to communicate with your partner about honestly about where you were and when you're going to come home. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. And, you know, I think there's just so many like nuanced examples of it. And, you know, if you, f- I think like if you feel like you're questioning your sanity and then you feel like you have to like have hard evidence as facts of why you're right or like not the crazy one, that's maybe a, 
red flag and sign that you should explore leaving that relationship. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting about all of these different types of abuse that we're talking about, but especially about with gaslighting is that we don't just see this kind of abuse in intimate partner relationships. We'll see this kind of abuse in familial relationships or in friendships. Right. And I know like for me, that was one of the biggest experiences with gaslighting that I had was in a friendship that was abusive. And one of the things that I learned from that experience personally that I have now found a really helpful thing to share with clients is sometimes you have to have a third party that you really trust to be able to validate that you're not crazy. And sometimes that's a therapist. Sometimes that's a friend. Um, I always give, did you guys ever read or watch the Hunger Games franchise? Yes. The first movie. I watched the movies. Okay. Well, Fern, I'm going to spoil it for you. That's fine. So spoiler (laughs) warning uh, for a series that's been out for years. Um, But, you know, at, in one of the later books, there is um, an experience where PETA has been tortured and fed all of this misinformation to the point that Essentially, he's Mm -hmm. been gaslit so much that he no longer has any kind of grasp on reality. Mm. And he is feeling total, which I think is, you know, one of the impacts of intimate partner violence, right? Is that it makes this situation where you feel totally untethered and unstable in Mm. so many different areas of your life. And one of the things that he does in the books to try to ground himself and find that reality is he looks to Katniss and with different aspects of their history or the situation, he's asking, was this real or not real? And I think that if you have someone in your life that you trust, whether it is a therapist, a friend, a family member... Sometimes that can be really helpful when you're in a situation where you're being gaslit constantly to be able to say to them, like, hey, like, you know, my perception was that this person bailed last minute and lied about why they weren't there. But they're telling me that they told me ahead of time that they weren't coming. Am I totally crazy? And that's not what happened. And having that third party person who was there be able to say no. That's not what happened at all. Like they are manipulating you to get, because they got caught in a lie. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something that I think is always really helpful. And that I will talk with clients about in session when it seems that there is a lot of gaslighting or a lot of manipulation going on and they start Mm -hmm. to question their own perception and memories of events. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great I think that's a great explanation of it and and provides a really clear understanding of the difference between again having just two different perspectives of an experience versus being actually gaslit and and what it means to experience that. If you're looking for some extra support with your mental health, now is a great time to see a therapist. Our practice has therapists located in 24 states across the country, and we have three local offices in the Philadelphia area. Don't let sad girl summer become depressed girl fall. Book your appointment now. Thinking about intimate partner violence, Jess, can you explain a little bit about like the cycle of abuse and how to look out for that as well in relationships? Yeah, absolutely. So this is another thing that I often will present to clients early on in the therapeutic process as a way to give them information so they can identify whether or not this aligns with their experience, right? So I will give them kind of a brief introduction to the cycle of abuse. So in intimate partner violence situations, Pretty much always, this abuse occurs 
in this very cyclical fashion. So it'll start with some kind of stressor, right? So we all experience stressors on a daily basis, whether it's stress at work, stress with your family, um, the world is just pretty stressful right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what happens in a situation where there's intimate partner violence is that one of the partners is responding to a stressor in their life. And I think what they're doing is that they're looking to feel in control in a situation where they are feeling out of control because of this stressor. Right. And so unfortunately this coping skill essentially that they're using is maladaptive. Right. And so instead of looking to feel in control in a healthy way, they decide to exert power and control over their partner. Right. And so they're using this abusive act um, in response to a stressor. Right. And so that may be that they are physically violent, sexually violent, you know, control your finances are verbally abusive, whatever, but there's some sort of abusive incident that Mm -hmm. happens. And then from there, the next phase of that cycle is that there will be some sort of reconciliation of this abuse that happens, whether that is the partner apologizing for the abusive behavior. They might say things like, I'm so sorry, this will never happen again. I can't believe that I did this. Be really apologetic. Um, In some situations, they are very much not apologetic, right? And it might be things like, well, I wouldn't have had to go through your phone and read all of your text messages if you weren't always flirting with other people, Mm. right? And they are blaming the abusive behavior on you, right? That Mm -hmm. you were the cause, of this abusive behavior, but whatever it is in some way, they reconcile this behavior and explain it away. Right. Mm -hmm. So that either I'm not going to do it again, or you're not going to do this bad thing again that caused it to happen. So it won't happen again. Right. Mm -hmm. Once they have reconciled that behavior in some way, typically we see them move into this phase that we call the honeymoon phase. So this often looks a lot like those first few weeks or months of dating someone, right? Where they're super affectionate. Maybe they're buying you things or taking you out to nice dinners or are just really attentive in a way that feels really, really good. And I will always tell clients that this honeymoon phase of this cycle, that's what keeps people in these relationships. When people are asking why did you stay? It's because when I look at the relationship, most of the time, all I can remember is that honeymoon phase. Because Mm. when I'm in that honeymoon phase, things feel so good. The relationship is so exciting and intense and enjoyable and makes me feel good about myself Mm -hmm. that I, you know, kind of can't remember what it was like when I was in that abusive phase of the relationship how Mm. long after the honeymoon phase does the abuse start again or is that like different for everybody no it's a good question you know i think it depends a lot it changes you know relationship to relationship but also it can change at different times in your relationship right so i think i've had some clients where For them, initially, it was taking them three to six months to work their way through this cycle of abuse, right? And so the abuse was fairly infrequent, right? Mm -hmm. But then, you know, maybe as, you know, things change in the relationship or stressors in their life increase, then maybe the cycle starts to move faster for them. So I've had clients where they move through the cycle, you know, once or twice a year. And I've had clients where they're moving through that cycle four or five, six times a day, right. Mm. Where, you know, it starts to move faster and faster. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I will tell clients is I think, you know, often when they are at the point where they're coming to therapy, they are feeling like, how did I get in this situation? You know, what, 
how, why am I still here? People in their mm-hmm. life may even be asking them, like, why aren't you leaving? Why are you putting up with this? Right. Um, and I think those questions, while maybe well-intentioned, you know, are a little bit short-sighted um, and ultimately very much not helpful <laughs> questions to ask. Yeah. You know, I think when you're in that cycle of abuse, I will often describe it to clients as it feels like you're in the center of a tornado, right? And you, that cycle is moving so fast that you can't even get a good perception on what is this relationship like? Am I in a relationship where my partner is controlling what I eat and what I wear and who I hang out with? Or mm-hmm. am I in a relationship where my partner is really loving and attentive and buying me nice things and taking me on fancy vacations. And I think, you know, being in the middle of that tornado feels really disorienting. Yeah. You know, especially if there is a lot of gaslighting or manipulation going on, right? It, you don't know which way is up or down or, you know, how you got there and you're not sure. I think uh, often like it makes you unsure of what you want going forward. Right. And you feel unsure about what's causing the tornado. Um, Is it me? Is it them? Is it something that is inherent? Is it something that we could work on and we could change? Right. And so I think, you know, once you're in the middle of that tornado, it's really hard to see clearly and hard to figure out what do I do next? And so people almost Mm -hmm. become like paralyzed in the cycle of abuse. Yeah. Guess the the big question is, and I don't even know if you could fully answer this, Jess. But so, how do you get out of it then? How do you get out of an abusive friendship, abusive abusive family relationship, abusive romantic relationship? How do you not only catch those warning signs, but also leave? Because that's we know that it takes the average person. We just talked about this the other day, Jess. What seven to eight tries to leave an abusive relationship typically? Yeah, yeah, you know, leaving an abusive relationship is so hard, right? Because ultimately, by the nature of it being an abusive relationship, your partner has done everything that they can to make you dependent on them emotionally, um, sometimes dependent on them physically for care or financially. And so leaving can feel really, really intimidating, right? right? It also can feel really scary. One of the things that we know is that when you're trying to leave, that is the most dangerous time in an abusive relationship. That is where, you know, we see that violence will often escalate, right? So maybe there hasn't been any physical violence thus far, but when you try to leave, it might escalate to physical violence. Um, and that's, you know, I think, I think that makes sense, right? Because if intimate partner violence is all about control, when are they going to feel most out of control other than when you're trying to leave them, right? And so they have this strong reaction and that is where we see these behaviors escalate. So I think it is important to note that that's often the most dangerous time. And I think people who are experiencing intimate partner violence, whether it's physical or not, I think they're instinctively aware that it would be dangerous to try to leave an intimate partner, a situation where there's intimate partner violence happening. Right. And so, you know, Fern, as you said, on average, it takes someone seven times to leave. Right. And that's usually because when they try to leave the partner pulls out all the stops on manipulation and coercion and, you know, anything that they can do. All the, uh, I'm going to do better. Right. Right. Yeah. Like I'm going to, I'm going to go to therapy. They almost Mm -hmm. never do. Yeah. They go once and they say like, Oh, it wasn't a good fit or like Mm -hmm. they know nothing. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. Gabby. Right. Like they'll, they'll give you, a little taste of what it is that you're looking for as a way to keep you invested and for you to give them another shot. Right. And so then you turn around and two weeks later, you're like, I decided to leave this relationship. How am I still in it? 
Like what happened? Right. And it's because you took maybe one step outside of that tornado, but you were still close enough that they were able to suck you back in because you, you weren't far enough removed. And I think that that's why it takes seven times, right? Because one thing I will tell clients when they get, you know, down on themselves, there's a lot of shame associated with intimate partner violence or sexual violence, right? Like that's often one of the main things that we're working on in therapy is combating the shame because it's not your fault if you're experiencing these things. Um, and so one of the things that I will often tell clients is, you know, every time that you make an attempt and maybe it doesn't work, you still learned something from that experience. You have more information now than you did before the first time you tried to leave. And you can use all of that information to make decisions about how you're going to leave the next time. Right. And maybe that will be the time that works. Yeah. It's like almost like when people are like, oh, I never want to be in a relationship again because it hurts. But then it's like well, being in relationships actually teaches you about like what you do and don't want. The same thing goes for when you leave. It teaches you like how to get better mm -hmm. at it, how to stay stronger, how to realize like what you do deserve versus like going back and quote unquote just like taking, you know, the crumbs. Right. And I think oftentimes, you know, intimate partner violence can be so connected with feelings of shame and low self-esteem, right? And I think, you know, one of the most important parts for me as a therapist is that we're working to build up your self-esteem, to build up your self-worth so that you know you don't deserve to be treated that way. You don't deserve, you know, to be criticized by your partner for your appearance or, you know, not having a high paying enough job or whatever it is that they are using to make you feel powerless in that situation. Like you don't deserve that. All of us deserve relationships that are built on mutual respect and kindness and wanting to encourage and support your partner in their journey, wherever that takes them. Right. And I think that that is something that people learn in that process of leaving an abusive relationship, right? Like they learn about what they don't want. They learn what those red flags are mm -hmm. and hopefully mm -hmm. they will then notice those in any potential partners in the future and say, mm, yeah. I don't actually want to go there. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. And, and so I guess if you are a loved one of someone that you're seeing in this relationship or you're – again, you might be suspicious that something is going on. How – as a loved one to someone who's going through that, would you suggest that maybe they approach it? Should they, should they do anything? If they do do anything, like what do you think is an appropriate thing to say or do? Um you know, just for anyone who's listening, who's maybe looking for some guidance around that? Yeah, I think that's such an important question. It's such a hard one. And most of the time, people don't like the answer, right? Because the answer usually is not get in the person's face and, you know, call out the behavior in the moment and, you know, have this like movie kind of moment where you stand up to this person who's abusing your loved one. Um, because usually that will escalate the situation when they are behind closed doors, right? That there will be retaliation for that well-intentioned act <laughs> that you, you mm -hmm. made, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And so usually the best, the best thing to do is you can try to diffuse the situation if you're witnessing it in the moment, right? By saying, hey, like, let's go over here and, you know, grab food or whatever. Um, you know, kind of subtly separating them to allow time for people to calm down and for things to diffuse. Um, if you're talking about how do I talk to this person that I think is being abused, I think really the answer is do less talking and more listening, right? So I will often tell people, you know, 
don't tell someone your relationship is abusive or don't tell someone, hey, your partner is a jerk, right? Because they have been conditioned to have a response where they are going to then defend that partner to you. And really you're feeding into the partner's ability to isolate your friend from you, right? Because they're going to be able to use, turn that around and say, that person doesn't understand us. You shouldn't talk to them about our relationship anymore. We shouldn't hang out with them anymore. And so I think the best thing that you can do is ask questions, right? So, you know, when you have them alone or whatever, saying, hey, like, I noticed that your partner was, you know, making comments about this or raising their voice or I saw like what happened yesterday. Like, are you okay? I wanted to check in. How are you? How do you feel when they do that? Right. So asking those questions to give them the opportunity to self-reflect, right? You're giving them the opportunity and the time and space to maybe, you know, step away from that tornado for half a second and think, wait, how do I feel about that behavior? And how do I feel about the fact that this person saw that behavior? So for me, like asking questions, you know, letting them know, like, hey, like, I'm always here if you ever need anything. Like, I hope you know that, you know, making sure not to label their experience. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we've talked, I think, already about how intimate partner violence is all about power and control, right? And so the thing that we don't want to do as a loved one is be another person who's taking power and control away from them, Mm -hmm. right? We don't want to be labeling the experience for them or you know, forcing them to leave with us or whatever, right? That's why for me as a therapist, like I'm not going to label your experience for you, but we can encourage them to feel empowered and to make these choices for themselves, right? And so Mm -hmm. letting them know that you like support them no matter what, saying, hey, like, you know, sometimes relationships can be really confusing you know, if you ever need anything or need someone to talk to, I'm here. Even saying, hey, like, I read this really interesting book, or I listened to this interesting podcast, I thought you might find it interesting. And you can send it to them. And it's their choice whether they make use of those resources or not. Yeah. And I guess on that topic too, Jess, are there any specific resources that you would recommend for people either either going through you know, an abusive relationship to some degree or someone who's, you know, worried about someone who might be going through that. Any, yeah, just resources that you recommend for people to to use if, if they find themselves in this position? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot out there about intimate partner violence, whether it's books, films, um, so many brave survivors are have done all of us the honor of like sharing their stories publicly um so i think a lot of times survivors will hear their own experience in those stories and that can be really eye-opening for them i hesitate personally to give those accounts to clients because they can also be really triggering and i think that that's a choice that people have to make for themselves about whether or not they want to read that. So I probably wouldn't, you know, recommend a novel or a memoir or a film to a friend that I thought was in an abusive situation, unless I had really thought carefully about how that was going to be received by them. Because some of those accounts can be really trauma heavy. Even some of the fictional stuff, it's like reading it can be really upsetting to read. And so for me, I tend to gravitate towards more educational resources around this topic. So I'm a big fan of Break the Cycle, uh, which is an organization that does education about intimate partner violence and kind of the cycle of abuse and how to break out of that cycle. Uh, Loveisrespect.org is another organization that has really great information there's an organization called um, RAIN, which is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. 
um, I actually interned for them when I was in college um, and they run um, a really great resource um, specifically if there's a lot of sexual abuse occurring in the relationship, I think that that can be a really great resource. And then there's an organization called the hotline. I think it's just, yeah, the hotline.org and both the hotline and rain have a lot of different ways to access support if you need support as well as education, which I think makes them great resources uh, I think both resources allow options to chat online with a crisis counselor and ask questions, um, to text, and also to utilize like the national hotlines for domestic violence and sexual abuse. And I think, you know, talking to a crisis counselor anonymously can be a really great way to start exploring, is this what's happening to me? You know, you can call and talk to a crisis counselor and say, hey, like, I want to stay anonymous. I don't want to give my information. But this is what's happening in my relationship. And I'm trying to figure out whether or not this is abuse or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think often yeah. that's like a really great safe place to start. I think that's great. Yeah. Like it's it gives people that, you know, space that maybe feels like a you know, non-biased third party and less, you know, maybe shame about talking to somebody that you know. Um, and also, I, you know, I think there's a number of people that are in these types of situations that don't actually have like the support of mm -hmm. a therapist to talk about this. So giving that resource is wonderful. Thank you, Jess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the good thing about those resources is that they're completely free they're available to people who might be experiencing this type of abuse, but they're also available for loved ones, right? So if you are worried that your friend or your sibling or someone that you know is experiencing abuse, you can call or contact those hotlines and say, here's the warning signs that I'm seeing. This is what's going on. I'm not sure what to do. And a crisis counselor can talk you through your specific situation and how you can support that person. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't realize that. That's mm -hmm. really cool. That's a great resource. Even uh, me as a therapist, I did not know that. And I can use that now for yeah. my own clients. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Jess, thank you so much for coming on today. I feel like I learned a ton. I hope anyone who's listening also learned a ton but you are just so full of knowledge. So thank you so much for, yeah, much thank you so much for just coming on and, and ed, yeah, teaching us, educating us. It's it's really helpful. So thank you. It is. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jess. Yeah, of course. It was so fun. Thanks for having me. That's our episode for today. Thank you guys for being here with us. And um, if you like this episode, you found it helpful, you know, please make sure you share it with those around you and read us and uh, leave a review. And we're always here. And if you have more questions, feel free to email us. And we are, you know, here to answer questions and try to support. Thanks everybody for coming today. Thanks everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Therapy for Women podcast. To suggest a topic, submit a question, or find a qualified therapist, visit therapyforwomencenter.com.